Give him praise and glory in the house of God. Amen. You may be seated. One of the many objectives we have here at Live Oak is that we want you to have this amazing faith, a faith that moves mountains, a faith that, again, sees amazing things happen, a faith that, again, changes your heart and life, a faith, not just a blind faith. We don't believe in blind faith here at Live Oak, but a faith based on evidence. Uh, maybe some would call that a forensic faith. A faith based on evidence, a faith that says, you know what, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. And here are the facts that support my faith. And we want you to have that kind of faith because that kind of faith produces an amazing hope and amazing hope produces amazing love for our Lord and Savior. And that's what life's all about, right? Faith, hope, and love. These three, the greatest of these is love. And so we want you to have a faith as to where we came from and what is right and wrong. And again, what is my purpose in life and where am I going when I die? All these things that we, all these questions we have, all these things that we seek answers for. And so that's what we want to do here at Live Oak. We want you to have faith and hope and love based upon the evidence. And so again, I pray you'll be blessed this morning as Dr. Frank Turek is about to make his way here in just a few moments. Uh, come back tonight at six as we again deal with uh, the skeptical questions that so many people have so you can know how to give a reason to believe uh, for those who may ask you. And again, this is who we are and this is what we're all about. And so if you believe that what we're doing makes a difference in your life, in the lives of those around us, please support it. You can give online. There's boxes in the back. You can go to your smartphone, whatever God's calling you to do. Let's pray. And Father, I pray your blessings upon us. I pray, oh God, you will use us this day to have your word go out in such a way that it will change hearts and change lives. It'll help us, oh God, to rethink who we are and where we're going and why we're here and the purpose, oh God, you've given us. So bless the gift that we give and bless the one who gives it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Again, we're so glad you're here, and I pray you'll be blessed this morning as Dr. Frank Turk makes his way to the stage. I give him a live oak welcome. Uh, Dr. Frank is the guy who goes into universities and he goes to other places where uh, all sorts of people with all sorts of questions, many of them atheists or skeptics, want to ask questions. And he's the guy who gives answers and changes hearts and lives with the power of the Spirit of God and by the answers he gives based upon the evidence and the Word of God. And he does an amazing work throughout the land and around the world. And we're just blessed to have him here. Dr. Frank, God Thank bless you. Thank you, Dr. Mark. Thank you. Good morning, Live Oak. Let's go back to September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsor is United States Navy SEAL operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Monsor is standing on a roof in Ramadi and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper prone position at his feet. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket propelled grenade but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a bit of a lull in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, kill the Americans! As Mansoor and his team are looking for the next attack, an insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof it hits Monsor in the chest and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself, but if he does, his two teammates lying at his feet will surely die. Monsor yells, 
grenade. But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward chest first onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Monsor is dead. His two teammates lying at his feet receive only minor injuries because Monsor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Monsor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Monsor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsors High School in Garden Grove, California built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident insignia that the seals wear dominates the 50-yard line. January 2019, North Island, California, near San Diego, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsor, the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet, Zumwalt class. I was just in San Diego a few months ago and this ship was sitting in the harbor. This is Monsor's mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship, named in honor of her fallen son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Monsor literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. There's no greater love than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends, said Jesus of Nazareth before he went to the cross. Michael Monsor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But in today's culture, a lot of people don't think the story's true. They think it's invented. After all, it was written down by religious people. We know religious people tend to embellish things. And it's got miracles in it, like a resurrection. How many people in this room have seen someone rise from the dead after you knew they were dead for at least 36 hours. Yeah, none of us, why? Because it doesn't happen. And yet for you to be a Christian, you have to believe something none of us have ever seen. How rational is that? Well, I actually think it's quite easy to show that Christianity is true. You only need to answer four questions. In other words, if you investigate these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes. And if the answer to these four questions is yes, then Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. Now that is some pretty grooving music, isn't it? 
That's actually from our TV show, which is on every Wednesday nights on DirecTV channel 378. How many people have DirecTV? Get us your hands, please. Direct TV. <laughs> like 12 of us. Come on, friends don't let friends watch cable. All right, how many people have Roku? Roku, can I see your hands, please? Roku, okay, good. Uh, look for it on Roku. Just look for NRB TV on Roku. Here it'd be 8 p.m. Central Time. All right, if you don't have DirecTV and you don't have Roku, it's on this new technology sweeping, sweeping Baton Rouge right now. It's called the internet. Have you guys heard of this? Yeah, if you go to our website, crossexamine.org, at that time, 8 p.m. Central, you can watch the show streaming live. Right now we're going through the Book of Romans. Uh, and then we're on radio every Saturday morning. I don't know if it's on locally here or not, but if it's not, it's podcasted. It's called the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. It's actually two shows a week. And what we do is we present evidence for Christianity and we cross-examine ideas against it, as uh, Dr. Mark was saying, uh, based on our website, crossexamine.org. Now, why are these the four questions? Truth, God, miracles, and the New Testament. And this is gonna serve, by the way, as our outline here this morning and into tonight. Tonight, uh, This morning, we're just gonna cover the first question. And then tonight, we're gonna come back and uh, do the next three questions and then take your questions. But why are these the big four? Well, first, does truth exist? Why is that important? Because you hear people saying there's no truth. You got your truth, I got my truth. All truth is relative. You ought not judge. You hear all these claims, right? Well, if there's no truth, then Christianity can't be true. Of course, if there's no truth, atheism can't be true either, right? Now, if there's no truth, why would you ever read a book? Why would you ever go to school? I mean, if there was no truth, could you ever catch someone in a lie? I mean, lies presuppose truth. Of course there's truth. We're going to deal with it here this morning. Second question, does God exist? Tonight, we're going to see through three lines of argument that God actually does exist, and you don't need the Bible to know it. In fact, people knew there was a God long before there was a Bible. We're going to look at some of the arguments for God tonight, and we're going to see that the God, the theistic God, a God beyond the world who created the world and sustains the world, actually does exist. Third question, are miracles possible? People don't believe in miracles. In fact, I just asked you if you've ever seen a resurrection. Nobody said yes. Well, tonight we're going to see that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle in the Bible, even greater than the resurrection, even atheists are admitting the evidence for. We'll see that tonight. And then we're going to get to the key question, is the New Testament true? Particularly with regard to the resurrection. We're going to see if Jesus really did rise from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, game over, Christianity's true. Of course, if he didn't rise from the dead, game over, it's false. You might as well sleep in on Sunday and do what you want the rest of the week because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, Christianity is false. And Paul even says this in his first letter to the church at Corinth. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain. Do you realize Christianity is a religion you can investigate and discover whether or not it's true? It's not just someone's philosophy. This is based on historical events. You can discover this. Now, if Jesus really rose from the dead, as we point out in the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, you can show the entire Bible is the word of God. You say, well, how so? Look, if Jesus rose from the dead, predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead, then he's God. And whatever God teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament is the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. You say, why well, trust Jesus? Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says, all right? Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, Frank, why go through all this evidence? 
Why not just believe? Why not just have faith, blind faith? Is that what we're supposed to do? No, we're not supposed to do that. In fact, the scriptures in many places tell us to get evidence for what we believe. Peter actually says this about it. He says, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey. And you can see, I speak at 150 words a minute with Gus to 350. So you cannot listen in Southern, all right? You gotta speed up your processing unit this morning and tonight, because we're gonna go through this stuff quickly, all right? Now, what we're gonna do is we're gonna start right here at point one, does truth exist? And then tonight we'll come back and do the other three points and take your questions. You guys ready to go? All right, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> right? Because Tom Cruise had him on the witness stand, and he said to him, Colonel, I want the truth. And Nicholson said, Live Oak, that was lame. <laughs> if he said it that way, the movie would have gone nowhere. You can't handle the truth. That's not how he said it. Here's how he said it. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. All right, let's try it again. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Now that felt better, didn't it? <laughs> didn't you always want to do that in church? Didn't that feel good? Well, there's a lot of people that can't handle the truth. They're saying, you got your truth. I got my truth. All truth is relative. If you don't get anything else out of what we talk about here this morning, what we're gonna talk about in the next five minutes is the most important thinking skill I've ever learned, and it's helped me immeasurably discover the truth and also avoid what's false, which is critical. And I didn't learn this until I was 33 years old. I, was, I already had a master's degree. I was 33 years old, and I didn't know what I'm about to tell you now. And it's so simple. You know why I didn't know it? I never had a course in logic. How many people have had a real course in logic? Can I see your hands, please? Raise your hand. See these people with their hands up? These are the homeschoolers, all right? <laughs> we don't teach logic in public school. We should. Instead of teaching kids how to think, you know what we're doing? We're teaching them what to feel, which is really dangerous. Because look, yeah, emotion makes life fun, but logic makes life safe. If you follow your emotion around without thinking, you're not only going to wind up hurting yourself, you're going to wind up hurting a lot of other people as well. You've got to know logic. And one of the aspects of logic, one of the laws of logic is called the law of non-contradiction, which says opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense, right? Look, we're either in Louisiana or we're not, but we're not both, right? Either God exists or he doesn't exist, but not both. It's one or the other. Law of non-contradiction. And what we're going to do is apply the law of non-contradiction to several statements you hear in our culture today. And this tactic we're going to do, we're going to show, this thinking tactic will help you discover what is false. That's very important. Why? Because if you start living by false principles, one day you're going to smack up against reality and it's going to hurt. So this little technique here will help you discover what is false, and it's also going to help you amaze your friends. Why? Because you're going to be able to ask questions when they say something in a very nice way 
and you're gonna be able to demonstrate to them that what they believe is false, and it's easy to do. So let's do a few of these uh, false statements you're gonna hear in our culture. Uh, if you go to somebody and you say, hey, I think Christianity's true, they might say, there is no truth. If somebody says that, you wanna ask this person a question, what should the question be? Yeah, if somebody says there's no truth, you gotta say, is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? Can everybody see this is a self-defeating statement that it violates itself? It also violates the law of non-contradiction, right? It claims to be true while at the same time claiming there are no truths. This is like saying I can't speak a word in English. If I were to say I can't speak a word in English, what would you say? Say you're using English to say it. Or it'd be like me saying my parents had no kids that lived. Right? Or my brother is an only child. Right? You go, this is crazy. Well, so many of the statements in our culture are just like that. They violate the law of non-contradiction. They can't be true. Now, here's how you expose them. Very easily, what you do is you turn the claim on itself. You turn the claim on itself. So if somebody says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself and you simply ask, is that true? See what they say. You're not being unkind. You're just asking questions. Let's do a few more. Suppose someone says uh, there's no such thing as absolute truth. If you turn the claim on itself, what question are you going to ask them? Yeah, you're going to say, is that an absolute truth? Can everyone see this is an absolute truth claim claiming there are no such thing as absolute truths? Again, it's like saying I can't speak a word in English. And you're just asking a question. Now, in our culture, it's more often said this way, or at least hinted at this way. People will say, there isn't the truth, only my truth. You know, you live your truth, I'll live my truth, and we'll all get along. It sounds so right, doesn't it? Sounds like we all ought to believe this. It sounds so Oprah, doesn't it? Everyone has their own truth and you just do you and I'll do me. There's a big problem with this though. It's logically self-defeating. Because if somebody says there isn't the truth, only my truth, if you turn the claim on itself, just ask that person, is that just your truth or the truth? In other words, is the statement on the top just you, just your truth, just your opinion. Well, if it is, why should I believe it? But if you're saying the statement on the top is the truth for everyone, notice the first half of the statement says there aren't any the truths. Can everybody say that, see that this is a the truth statement claiming there are no such thing as the true statements? It violates itself. In fact, I know this is very unpopular in our culture to say, but I gotta say it. There's no such thing as your truth. There's no such thing as my truth. There's just the truth. If you want to say you have your own truth, you might as well say I have my own math. I mean, imagine if uh, Dr. Mark said, hey, Frank, can you hang around another day down here in Denham Springs? Like tomorrow I need some help around the church. If you, you hang out, don't worry, I'll pay you. I'll pay you $10 an hour. You just tell me how many hours you work and I'll pay you. Now, actually, Dr. Mark would never do this. He doesn't pay that much. <laughs> anyway, but let's say I did. I hung out and I worked a full day, 15 hours. And after the, the full day, he goes, what do I owe you? I said, okay, you, $10 an hour times 15 hours. You owe me $150,000. And he goes, what? 
I don't owe you 150,000, I owe you 150. And I go, oh no, you don't understand. I have my own math. <laughs> What's he gonna say? That just doesn't add up, right? You're crazy. There's not my math or your math. There's just math. Now, parents, I'm not talking about the math your kid's bringing home. This isn't my math. No, look, I mean, there's just one answer to a math problem. It's not my answer or your answer. It's the answer, right? There's just the truth, not your truth. You can't create your own reality. I know we want to, but we can't. Now, sometimes it's actually said this way. It's true for you, but not for me. Well, you know, Christianity may be true for you. Buddhism's true for me. What do you say to that? This is also logically self-defeating. It's just a little bit more subtle. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say, hey, is that true for everybody? It's true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because if true for you, but not for me, it's true for everybody, then true for you, but not for me can't be true because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. <laughs> but that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. Actually, there's a more fun way of dealing with this. If somebody says it's true for you, but not for me, say sure. Go try that the next time you get pulled over. <laughs> Let's say you're going down Highway 12 at like 100 miles an hour. Cop sees you, pulls you over, walks up to your car, you put the glass down, he says, you were going 100. It's easy to get out of a ticket. You simply say, that's true for you, but not for me. And you speed away. <laughs> you can't give you a ticket if it's not true for you. No, if it's true you were going 100, that's true for all people at all times in all places when referring to you at that time. It's just true. The same thing is true with God. Either God exists or he doesn't exist. It's not just true for you. It's true for everybody, whatever the truth is. In fact, I go to a lot of churches. I normally ask people, do you think Christianity's true? Most people will say yes, and then I'll ask them why. Do you know what answer I get more than any other? Because I have faith. Is that a good answer? Does your faith change whether or not God exists or Jesus rose from the dead? No, if God exists, he exists regardless of whether you have faith in him. If Jesus rose from the dead, that's true, regardless of whether you believe it. And if he didn't rise from the dead, you could believe it all day. It ain't true. I mean, do you have to believe something to make it true? Do you have to believe in gravity to stay on the ground? Do people who don't believe in gravity float away? Hey, look, there's another one. <laughs> hey, if you believe, you'll come back. No, that's not the way it works. You say, why is the Bible talking about faith then? Because there's two kinds of faith. There's belief that, and then there's belief in. This is a very important distinction. Belief that is getting to evidence that God exists, that Jesus rose from the dead, that the Bible writers are telling the truth. This is what we call apologetics. It doesn't mean we're saying we're sorry. It's a Greek word that was actually in the verse I had up there earlier, 1 Peter 3.15, Apologia means to give evidence, give a defense for. You're not saying you're sorry, we're giving evidence. But all the belief that in the world won't get your moral transgressions forgiven. For that, you gotta go from belief that to belief in. You can know something's true and not assent to it, right? In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? Man, you guys are sharp this morning. James says, even the demons believe that God exists, but they tremble. Do you know that if God exists, and he does, and if demons exist, and they do, just watch the news, 
Do you know that demons know that God exists better than we do? They're in the spiritual realm, but they don't trust in him. Why? They don't want to trust in him. Because there's, see, there's a difference between belief that and belief in. And we know this in relationships, don't we? There's a difference between belief that and belief in. When I first met my wife 38 years ago, I got evidence that she would be a good wife, but all the evidence in the world didn't make her my wife. I had to take a step of trust in her to ask her to be my wife. And in a momentary lapse of judgment, she said yes. <laughs> That's the difference between belief that and belief in. Now, most of the time when the Bible's talking about faith, it's talking about the second kind. After you know that Jesus is the savior, trust in him. If you don't want to, you don't have to. God's not going to force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. Now, there is one place where John, the biographer who wrote the gospel of John, puts belief that and belief in in one sentence. It's the end of chapter 20 of John's gospel, and I'm paraphrasing. He says this, these things were written down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and by trusting in him, you may have life in his name. He's got both in one sentence, belief that and belief in. Now, you're also going to hear this if you're a Christian, especially if you make any sort of judgment. People are going to say, you ought not judge. Jesus said, don't judge. Why are you judging, you hypocrites? Okay, let's put Jesus aside for just a second. Logically, what's the problem with the claim? Can anyone see it? Yeah, if somebody says you ought not judge, you might want to say, hey, isn't that a judgment? Or when they say you ought not judge, you may want to put your hands on your hips and say, then why are you judging me for judging? Notice it's a judgment to say don't make judgments. You say, wait a minute, didn't Jesus say don't make judgments? Nope, never did. Sure he did. He said it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. This is in the middle of his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He said, judge not. Okay. I know this is going to sound odd for just a minute, but stick with me. It's true. There are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. Do you think when Matthew was writing his biography, which we call a gospel, he said, here's chapter seven, verse one. No, when were the chapter and verse divisions put in? About 500 years ago to help us navigate the text, which is really important, why? Because it'd be really hard to find your way around this big series of books we put under one binding we call the Bible if you didn't have numbers. I mean, imagine if you didn't have numbers in your Bible and, and, and Dr. Mark didn't have numbers in his and he got up here one Sunday morning with this big book and he just opened it and he said, let's go about two thirds of the way in. Let's see if we can find the same spot. Right? You, you couldn't do that, right? You need numbers to help you find your way around. The problem is we tend to think if it's got a number in front of it, we can just take it out of context and make it say whatever we want. This is, by the way, and some of you are going to hate me for this, but I don't care. I'm leaving tomorrow. <laughs> this is why, by the way, you should never say that Jeremiah 29, 11 is a promise to you. What's Jeremiah 29? Oh, you know Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to give you hope in the future. You know, this is on coffee mugs, this is on pillows, this is on posters, this is on birthday cards. Is, is, is this a promise to 21st century Christians living in Denham Springs, Louisiana? No, who's that a promise to? That's a promise to the exiles of Judah that Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian dictator, took out of Judah and brought to Babylon in 586 BC. It's a promise to them. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, was telling them, 
70 years from now, I'm gonna prosper you. I'm gonna bring you back in the land. I have hope. I'm gonna give you hope in the future. It's not a promise to us today. It's a promise to them 2,600 years ago. When people claim that Jeremiah 29, 11 is a promise to them, I say, why don't you claim Jeremiah 44, 11 as a promise to you? What does Jeremiah 44, 11 say? Jeremiah 44, 11 is what the promise God made to the exiles that went to Egypt. And he warned them, don't go to Egypt. You know what Jeremiah 44, 11 says? It says, I will destroy you in all Judah. You don't see that stitched into a pillow. You don't see that on a poster or on a coffee mug. You don't see that on a birthday card. Happy birthday. I will destroy you in all Judah. That is so sweet, grandma. Thank you so much. No. And the same thing is true of Matthew 7, 1. Does Jesus say, judge not, and he stops right there? No, what does he say? Judge not, lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, notice that's a judgment, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first, then you'll be better able to help your brother. And then he goes on to say, don't cast your pearls before swine, which involves another series of judgments. Is Jesus telling us not to make judgments? No, he's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. So this is not a command not to judge. It's a command on how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. In fact, elsewhere in John 7, 24, Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. You have to make judgments. You'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. You made a hundred judgments just getting over here this morning. And now you're going, this was a bad judgment. This guy's crazy. <laughs> Where's Dr. Mark? Everybody, atheists make judgments. They judge there's no God. They judge Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Bible's not telling the truth. There is no objective meaning or purpose to life. When you die, it's over. You're just going to become worm food. Have a nice day. These are all judgments. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? I will say this, though. Jesus did save a very stern rebuke for people who were judgmental. And who were the judgmental ones in his day? Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? They were the religious and political leaders of Israel. Many of them were on the Sanhedrin. That was the political body to whom Rome delegated day-to-day lawmaking authority to. In other words, these people were the politicians. And Jesus went after these people. Are you telling me Jesus got involved in politics? Yes! And he wasn't so nice doing it. In fact, if you think Jesus was a sweet guy who's never said a bad word about anyone, you have not read John chapter 2, John chapter 8, or Matthew chapter 23. What happens in John chapter two? Jesus makes a whip and he goes and he jacks people up in the temple. Sweet and gentle Jesus did this. Yes. And then in John chapter eight, he's having an argument with these same politicians and he's right in the middle of the argument when he says, your father is the devil. Jesus, you can't say that. That's not very Christ-like. Excuse me, I am Christ. You imagine you're having an argument with somebody and you stop right in the middle and you go, your father is the devil. Never try that with a sibling, by the way. (laughs) And then in Matthew 23, he really goes after these politician religious folks when he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. 
You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Oh, you look great on the outside. You're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. You go a mile to make a convert, and then once you make them a convert, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you are. How will you avoid being condemned to hell? What? Sweet and gentle Jesus said this? Yes, Jesus was not Barney. Can't we all get along, boys and girls? No! I came to bring a sword. It's going to divide mother and daughter, father and son. How often do we hear anything about those verses? Yet many of you in this room know those verses are true. Why? Because you're divided in your own home over Jesus. You know, Jesus did not come to bring unity. Not with the world. He came to bring unity in the church, but not with the world. Jesus is going to divide you're supposed to deny yourself and follow him, even if other people around you don't like it. Jesus was tough. In fact, why did they kill him? You think he was killed for skipping around saying, love your neighbor? Love your neighbor? What did you say? You must die. No, you don't get killed for saying that. What do you get killed for? Claiming to be God because that was blasphemy to the Jews and sedition to the Romans. You also get killed for speaking truth to power, and that's what Jesus did to Caiaphas, the high priest. In fact, I think Caiaphas knew Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Because right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, what does Caiaphas say? Better that one innocent man die than the whole nation perish. Caiaphas had Jesus killed so he could maintain his job as the high priest at the temple. Because if Jesus succeeded, there's no more need for a temple. Why? Because we multiplied the temple. Where's the temple? There's a bunch of temples in here right now. You don't need a temple if Jesus is right. Jesus was tough. Some people just don't like the truth and they'll kill you for it. In fact, if you tell somebody something that's true and they get all angry at you, you just helped convict them. As Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. A few military people in here, and by the way, I was in the Navy for eight years, which stands for never again volunteer yourself. <laughs> you always get more flack when you're over the target. If you tell somebody something that's true and they're shooting back at you, you're over the target. They don't want their evil deeds exposed. And Jesus would expose them. He said, men love darkness rather than light. We don't like our evil deeds being exposed. We will suppress the truth about that. So we all need to make judgments, but we need to make judgments without being judgmental. There is nobody in this room or outside this room that's gonna make it to God because you're better than anyone else. We're all fallen. We're all sinners. We all need a savior. The only way we're gonna make it is by grace. That's why somebody said, you know what evangelism is? It's just one beggar showing another beggar where the food is. So we shouldn't be looking down our nose at other people going, I'm better than you. No, you're just as fallen as anybody else and you ain't gonna make it either without Jesus. Now, we could spend more time, but we don't have it on these self-defeating statements. So let's sum it all up. Can everybody see that this statement right here shoots itself? Can everybody see that? Which means relativism and postmodernism, which say that there is no truth, are false. 
because they claim it's true that there is no truth. Now, tragically, most of our high schools and just about all of our universities have bought into relativism and postmodernism. The truth that there is no truth. That's why we go there. Uh, here's a picture from an event we had at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and they love the Bible there about as much as the University of California at Berserkley does. In fact, I was just at LSU a couple of years ago here. Uh, next week, I'll be at Purdue University. We go to these colleges and we do the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentation and we set up a microphone. And when an unbeliever gets up to the microphone, if they express any hostility at all, I'll normally stop and ask this question. And I recommend you ask this question of anyone you know who's not a believer. And here's the question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? I've had atheists stand at that microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, no. No. How is that reasonable? It's not. This is not a head problem. This is a heart problem. They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. Why? Because they want to be God of their own lives. They're not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest. And they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term, doing a lot of fun but selfish and sinful things. Yet over the long term, it's a disaster. And everyone in this room who's over 40 knows what I'm talking about because many of us have tried it ourselves. Oh, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to live life my way. Not very long. Who's going to put up with you if it's all about you all the time? Yeah, if you just live your own way based on your impulses and your emotions, based on whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, with whomever you want to do it, you're going to wind up addicted, broken, alone, and probably prematurely dead. The only way to get true contentment is to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. But we don't want to do that. We want to go our own way. So always ask people, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If they hesitate or say no, not a head problem, it's a heart problem. What can you do with somebody who hesitates or says no? We'll talk about it tonight. In fact, when we come back tonight, we'll review what we did here, and then we're going to talk about does God exist, and are miracles possible, and is the New Testament true, and then we're going to do Q&A. Actually, I don't think we're going to do Q&A. I think tonight we're going to do all Q, no A, all right? <laughs> so everyone gets to ask a question, takes all the pressure off me, all right? Now, we'll do Q&A tonight as well. How many people can come tonight? Okay, these people are the saved people. You, the rest of you heathens, what are you doing? What are you, what, what, you watching football? Okay, there's a DVR. You've heard of that, right? You can fast forward. You can get home through all the commercials. Save you a lot of time. All right, now I did bring some books. Uh, and I want to point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know. All right? The book we're talking about here is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It argues from the ground up that Christianity is true. For people who don't even believe there's truth all the way to the Bible's word of God, there's a DVD set that you can get with it. A lot of people use that for homeschool, Sunday school, small groups. You can get workbooks on our website. So it's a video presentation of this book. It's over seven hours long. Uh, by the way, if you just take a picture of that with your phone, I'm going to send you the entire uh, PowerPoint presentation in a PDF format uh, for free, all the slides, even the ones I can't show you tonight, 
Uh, so if you just take a picture of that and follow the cues, I'll send that to you. Also, there's a book out there called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. I've noticed that when atheists are arguing there is no God, they're actually stealing aspects of reality that would only exist if God existed in order to say he doesn't exist. In effect, they have to sit in God's lap to slap his face. And now this book here in the corner is uh, brand new, just came out a few uh, months ago. It's called Correct, Not Politically Correct about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. There are no Bible verses in this book. This is not a case, a biblical case against these things. This is the natural law, medical, common sense case that both same-sex marriage and transgenderism are not good for societies and they're not good for individuals. So if this is an issue you've been dealing with or want to be better informed on, check out Correct, Not Politically Correct. Now, if we've run out of these books, you can uh, just uh, sign up, uh, pay for the book, and we'll send them here tomorrow uh, so next week when you come to church, you can just pick it up for free without any shipping. So if we run out of these, uh, just uh, tell Linda back there and uh, she'll, she'll take care of it for you. Now, when we come back tonight, we're going to see that somebody actually did die for you. And we're also going to see there's much more to the Michael Monsor story. So I hope to see you guys back here tonight at 6 p.m. Dr. Mark, take it away, sir. I pray that you are blessed this morning. I pray you'll come back tonight as well. Also, if you can't come back tonight, but hope you can, uh, you do get the books because there are people in your life, like there are in my life, that are skeptics, they're non-believers, they're agnostics. And again, we are called, as Dr. Turek said, to give a reason for the hope within us based on the word of God. So glad you're here this morning. Let's stand for our closing prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you, God, for your amazing grace. We thank you, God, for the evidence that demands a verdict. The evidence, oh God, that points to you, our creator, our redeemer, our savior. So Lord God, I just pray that we will have that, that faith, that hope, and that love by which, oh God, we can know you and make you known in a deeper and greater way. We thank you for this morning and all the things that we've learned. Help us, oh God, to remember the words that were taught this day and the words you've taught us to pray. The words of our Lord and Savior, we pray, praying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Find us the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Give him praise and glory in the house of God.